0: Hi, good morning. I'm Scott Warner. I'm president of the Culinary Stories of Chicago, and I'm so glad you're all here on this beautiful Midwestern morning to hear about the glory of Midwestern food. And we have quite the farmer, chef, and author all rolled into one who's here to reveal what our regional food is all about. <clears throat> And our speaker today, Abra Barons, isn't chopped liver either when it comes to espousing the glory of her favorite subject, Midwestern food. Abra is the author of Roughage, A Practical Guide to Vegetables. And I, I borrowed a copy to show you. I haven't paid for it yet, so I don't want to walk out without paying for it. Uh, um, Abra gained her expertise to write the book with a multifaceted career in food. She started cooking at the storied Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She then went on to train in the garden-focused kitchen at Ballymaloe Cookery School in Ireland. Uh, That's that's renowned across the world, uh, that school. In 2009, she founded Bare Knuckle Farm in Northport, Michigan, where she farmed and cooked for eight years. She then left for Chicago to open the cafe at Local Foods, and I had some of her food there some years back it was outstanding in 2017 she returned to michigan to join the team at grainer farms in three oaks michigan where she combines her love of farms and restaurants to create one of a kind dinners selling the best of southwest michigan's diverse agriculture abra is here today to share her passion about our midwestern food and we welcome you here with a big cool chicago hug Ah, Abra, oh, there there she is.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I have been a fan of the Culinary Historians since learning about it when I worked at Zingerman's Deli back in Ann Arbor, and so it's really a treat to be here and to get to talk to all of you, so thank you for having me. Scott, give a really wonderful introduction um, to to kind of continue that. Um, I started uh, cooking really on a little bit of a lark. I had uh, gotten into the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, was in school there, and then um, needed a job. And the only place I had really heard of was Zingerman's Deli. And not because it was this legendary food uh, and, and ethos-driven business, but because a friend of my sister's boyfriend had worked there 10 years beforehand. And so I thought, well, I don't know. He liked it, so maybe I'll try working there. Um, and that really changed uh, the way that I understood food, and I started tasting it in a new way and exploring different different flavors. And I went from uh, you know running trays and taking sandwich orders and uh, ringing people up to be into the kitchen there and started cooking. Um, And then it was there that I realized, maybe I want to do this for the rest of my life and um, started contemplating what it would mean to go to cooking school and what some of the options were in the culinary world. And uh, it was there that my chef and now... You know, mentor and now friend uh, introduced me to Ballymaloe, which is a cooking school, as I was saying, in the south of Ireland. That's on a hundred-acre working organic farm, and it was there that I started to realize that food in restaurants is a really beautiful and magical thing. But one of the most magical parts about it is that it gives people a window into how food is produced. And even the fanciest restaurants and even the corner stores, somebody grew the food that is in them. And so wanting to use... Uh, food and dishes and cooking as a way to kind of talk about this food production, which is often obscured for a lot of us because there are fewer and fewer farmers in our world um, each year. So I moved to Ireland and started cooking there and then moved back to Chicago and uh, was cooking um, in different restaurants around Chicago, most notably V out in Western Springs with Paul Verant, who had a very heavy emphasis on, on local seasonal produce and ingredients Um, And then decided, you know, there's something else that I need to do, which is to really learn what goes into this production. So in 2009, I started a farm up in northern Michigan, and uh, we were farming full time, and then Uh, I didn't know anything about farming besides what I had seen growing up. I grew up on an industrial pickle farm and that is very different than a small, hand-done biodiverse vegetable farm. So uh, there were lots of, it was a very steep learning curve and I thought, well, I know how to cook, so maybe I can feel like I know what I'm doing if I put on some dinners for people and at least stay in the realm that I understand. So we started making these meals that were based on the ingredients that we were growing. And I... It was amazing to me to see how people could see where food is grown and then taste it and understand that implicit connection between what's on the plate and what's coming out of the land from our area. And so that idea of using food as a storytelling device for our region became uh, part of my DNA in those those years. Um, for a variety of reasons, we closed our farm, um, most notably because commuting between Chicago and Traverse City is a very long commute. <laughs> it's about six hours each way, and uh, we decided that we weren't ready to leave Chicago, and so we moved back here full-time. And it was in that time that I started writing. And part of Roughage, which you're seeing images both from Roughage and also from Grainer Farm. Where I Cook Now, um, I wrote Roughage to really give people an idea of how my food had evolved, going from working strictly in restaurants to farming vegetables, and I went from being someone who really loves, you know, big meaty dishes with big ribeyes and that sort of like Chicago steakhouse kind of style dining, where there's a little bit of cream spinach on the side just for balance, uh, to really making vegetables the foremost part of my dinner, um, and and seeing that we had the same ingredients year in and year out, and how to make the them feel new and exciting, and a, a more and more a star of the plate. Uh, Ruffage has also been written to share our experiences as farmers of how to the best way to store kale or what to look for when you're picking out a bunch of carrots or, you know, what is kohlrabi and why does it have those big leaves on top, all of those things. And so that's really what Ruffage is, is it's a collection of these stories of my time farming, how to select, store and use uh, vegetables from the Midwest. So that's all of the background to how I was presented the question, what is Midwestern food? And that question came about mostly because as um, you know, people in the media and other reviewers who are not Midwesterners were reading our book, and they were saying, uh, this is the first vegetable-based book uh, written from a Midwestern perspective. Well, what does that mean? What is Midwestern food? And to be honest, I didn't have a great answer. Uh, I knew what people expected in this idea that it's, you know, casseroles and cheese curds. And if you're from Chicago, it's deep dish pizza and a Chicago hot dog. And don't you dare put ketchup on it. And like they know certain things about Midwestern food or Cincinnati chili that for some reason has spaghetti in it and all of those things. And I found more and more that people's perceptions of that food were... Lied in pretty stark contrast to the food that I was making and also the food that my friends and I were eating and wanting to give sort of a window into... Another form of Midwesternness that isn't often described in the media. And as I was thinking about this and thinking about the perceptions of this region, both from the outside and also internally, I started thinking a lot about this idea of non-places. This is a term that was coined by anthropologist Marc Ajou. He's a French anthropologist, so if there's any French speakers in here, please forgive my stumbling French pronunciation. Um, But his idea about non-places were these spaces that are not socially relevant because no one lives there. Places like the highway system, places like airport terminals, where there isn't an identity. And the way that he defines it. Is to, say, is to refer anthropological spaces of transience, where the human beings remain anonymous and that do not hold enough significance to be regarded as places. He goes on to write, a non-place is a place we do not live in, in which the individual remains anonymous and lonely. And I realized that for so much of the country, the Midwest, as a blanket statement, is seen that way. Um, We both are independent in our way that is we are a part of all of the country and also not tied to some of these other regions that have more identity associated with them. In some ways, I think that our ubiquity is both our greatest strength and our greatest weakness, and that in the vacuum of not having more Midwestern voices in national media, Uh, Our story is being told for us in a lot of ways, and it allows for some of those um, expectations to be fulfilled. And so the more I thought about that, the more I thought about... The ways that, for example, I was thinking about this at the same time that I learned that national news anchors are often trained to speak with a northern Midwestern accent so that they seem both completely familiar and also of all places or almost of no place at all. And how our food links to that. And so I realized that what I want the answer to what is Midwestern food to be is it's the food that is produced of this, the people of this region. And that sounds like a cheeky sort of non-answer. It's like defining the, the question with its own definition. But I really mean it sincerely. I, I think that the way that we describe what is Midwestern food is by telling the stories of the people that produce it. And for me, that ties really tightly with the idea that the only reason that food is important besides the nutrients we derive from it is because of the people that create it and that that is a very diverse group. And so when I think about what Midwestern food is to me, it is tied to the agriculture of this region. And I'm originally from Michigan. I now live in Michigan. Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation after California, which is surprising to a lot of people. Um, I think that when people think about Midwestern agriculture, they often think either of an antiquated old McDonald with his red barn, two cows, four pigs, eight chickens, uh, and a song. Or they think about a a large-scale farmer that's planting corn and soy in rotation, grasping at an industry that is dying. And I don't find that to be true. I find that at least in Michigan and in other parts specifically tied to the Great Lakes, we have such a diverse agricultural offering. Um, Everything from fruits to grains, vegetables, dairy, meat production, uh, we're getting into oil production, all of those things. And that to say that one farm looks exactly like another is undermining the diversity that we have under this seemingly placid, universal sort of archetype of a Midwesterner. In addition to that, I also feel like it's the people who are producing and cooking this food. And so when I think about Chicago specifically, I think about uh, people you know, who are doing those um, those very classic, the the deep dish pizzas, the steakhouses. Yes, that is a part of our history because Chicago had a huge part in the meat industry um, because of the way that the railroads were situated and our access to the plain states and the meat that was produced there. But it is also the people who moved here. It is people like Stephanie Hart from Brown Sugar Bakery on 75th Street, who is famous for her German baking, her her German chocolate cake. Uh, She is a product of the black migration from the south and carries with her the history of her southern ancestors and the people who were from West Africa who came before her. That is as much Midwestern food, but to define it as German influence because there were German immigrants alone is, I think, missing the point. I also think that there is as much to be said for Ch- uh, Kelly Chung, who runs Sunwa Bakery or Sunwa Restaurant up on Broadway, who's a second generation Chinese immigrant and making the famous roast duck that they have at their place. I think that all of those things are Midwestern food in the same breath that I think that Grant Ackett has really defined Midwestern food for uh, for the entire world. And it goes beyond the fancy meal alone. I think that To celebrate that diversity and the stories of these people is what I hope to achieve out of understanding what Midwestern food is. I also think it's important to have these conversations because no one else is going to have them for us. And that by seeking out these different voices and celebrating them, we're challenging some of the narrative about our region that has been ever prominent. in the last several election cycles and as our, our country evolves from being mostly in cities to having a back to the land movement that's starting to gain force again. And that I think by being interested in food and in the people that produce it, you have the ability to divine these decisions and these like choices that we make as Midwesterners and as food eaters. So that is my answer to uh, what is Midwestern food. And I am curious to know what you all think Midwestern food is or how you would define it. Um, so I think we were going to talk about opening it up to a question and answer session. Is that, can we do that? I, I, I mean, that is the sort of general arc of, of what I wanted to say is that um, Midwestern food is really about the people that create it. Um, but also why that's important. And and I'd love to know what you all think about that and and what you would like to to talk about next. Uh, So after being in Chicago and working at local foods, I really desperately missed that connection of being able to cook from a garden specifically Um, and so right now what we do at Grainer Farm is a biodiverse vegetable farm that also has a small grain program and that's our primary business is that we are a vegetable farm Uh, and then we do I host tasting menu dinners at our farm Uh, so every menu is about six courses you come arrive do a tour of the farm and then land in our farmhouse where we put on these course menus that are a representative of what we're growing Growing at a particular moment in time um, and so each menu is different it's based all around what we do and then also the meat and dairy from our neighbors and those meals take place uh, right now they are ten months out of the year which is May until the end of February um, and then we take March and April off and it's interesting because people often say um, sort of, well, it's February, Like, what could you possibly eat in the Midwest from a farm in February? And there is a ton of food that's available, both in terms of storage root crops that are pretty traditional way to preserve food, and then also um, things that we've preserved over the summer, things that are in our freezer. And then in some of these pictures, you'll see um, we have hoop houses, which are an unheated or solarly heated greenhouse, effectively, where things are still grown in the soil, but then um, uh, we have some season extension because of that. So we were harvesting spinach and arugula from those hoop houses until the end of March, and then we pull those plants out so that we can start planting for our spring crops again. Uh, so that is the the what we do at Grainer Farm. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. No farm stand. We do. It's open Friday through Sunday, Labor Day to or at Memorial Day to Labor Day, and then Friday and Saturday until the weekend before Thanksgiving question is how is roughage organized and it is organized alphabetically by vegetable and the reason for that is I uh, multifaceted one I wanted to make it a reference book so that you could uh, get vegetables whether you're in the Midwest or in Florida or Brazil or California and go to the market, pick out what you want to cook and then come home and find it as the primary ingredient to look it up. But then also the, the secondary part of that is to make the idea of market shopping more appealing. So going to the store or to the market without a grocery list and choosing the ingredient that you want to that looks good to you and then coming home and cooking it as opposed to creating a dish um, kind of out of thin air and then seeking out the ingredients to make it. So the, the question is, what is the process for writing a cookbook? Uh, it started for me, I started writing a food column in northern Michigan uh, five years ago. And that column was based on the ingredients that we were growing at our farm. So it opened with an introductory essay about the ingredient and then had several recipes on how to prepare it. And uh, from there, it was kind of taking those columns and expanding it and doing a deeper dive on each ingredient. For me, one of the big ways that farming changed the way that I cook is by realizing we have sort of a limited number of of things that we were growing each year and in each season. And so wanting to make it feel new and exciting each time, but also accessible. So that for me, I always kind of liken the book to being an NCAA bracket in reverse, uh, where you start with the winner, which is the ingredient, and then it's broken out by preparation techniques. So for asparagus, uh, roasted, raw, and grilled as three different ways to prepare it, And then there's a recipe for each preparation technique and then three variations. So the idea being that you can take the same ingredient, apply the same preparation technique, and then just change the flavor accents that are going with it and make an entirely different meal. So if you were to say, um, like here's a carrot salad from the raw section of the carrot chapter, that salad is uh, ribbons of carrot dressed with a lemony vinaigrette drizzled with yogurt, pistachios, and pickled golden raisins. But you could take those same carrots prepared the same way and put them with something like, a, um, like pecans and cheddar cheese and parsley. Or you could put them with something like smoked whitefish and a caraway seed vinaigrette and sour cream and have it be very Eastern European. Or you could dress it with the tar and um, cherry tomatoes and make something that's more evocative of uh, the Middle East or Mediterranean cuisine. And those carrots are functioning the same way each time, but how they're presented is very different. And so the process for writing a cookbook then was about a three and a half year process. Uh, It started with writing a proposal that um, is a very detailed sort of Um, explanation of what you're going to do with several sample chapters and then it was purchased by Chronicle who is the publisher um, in the spring of 2017 I had about 8 months to write the book and then it was delivered to Chronicle for editing and in that year between the delivery of the manuscript and the publication we did the photo shoots which you can see the final one is here Um, we did like a group um, sort of picnic kind of shot um, the photo shoots and the illustrations were all created in that year and then it all kind of gets zipped up into one one big thing and, and printed. <laughs> I think so the question was is it was it stressful to create the book? I I don't I feel like our culture needs a um... well, most, most authors I talk to are
2: just about ready for the Betty Ford Center for books. <laughs> so I just wondered what your experience
1: Thankfully, I did not feel that way. Um, and I think that our culture needs a word for positive stress. So was it busy? Was it taxing? Was it um, a lot of things? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but all of that was a positive, And it was getting to not only... The driving motivation is to share this information that I feel like I've learned from these years of farming and cooking, but then also to be a showcase for the work of of several other women, um, most notably the photographer and the food stylist who just made um, the book Incredibly Beautiful, the illustrator who helped take sort of my ideas about how to... uh, make one ingredient do this, and this, and maybe that, and then this other thing, uh, very easy to understand. Um, And then also the people who are editing the book who took what could be construed either as a cook's shorthand notebook of recipes and turn it into recipes that actually are readable by people who are not me, um, and then also who are able to take, as you can tell I'm a bit long-winded, uh, take some of those long-winded thoughts about culture and food and and make them more succinct. So it was it was both of those things. Yes, sir? I, I like your idea
2: or your approach of uh, thinking about Midwest food as being related to the people who produce it. Um, I'm just wondering, can you pull apart the history of this? I mean, what did it start with? How did we kind of move towards this kind of diverse set of people who live in the area and the cuisines that we you're calling Midwest?
1: Mm-hmm. So the question is, what is the like historical trajectory for the diversity of this region? Um, I mean, I don't I don't know that I'm the best equipped to to give that um, that history. I can relate it to my own family's history, which is that I grew up about 20 miles south of Holland, Michigan, to the descendants of Dutch immigrants, as one might imagine, near Holland, Michigan, Um, and I... You know, we, my family, my father's side of the family, moved there straight after immigrating from the Netherlands. There was a brief stopover at Ellis Island and New York, um, basically just long enough for the matriarch of our family, Drika, to see Lady Liberty and throw her wooden shoes into the ocean um, and say she would never need them anymore. Um, and then they moved to our area and, and took up agriculture, and, um, that agriculture went from a subsistence style farming, which is that sort of old McDonald's um, farmstead that people I think imagine, to more commercial agriculture, where after um, the after World War II we were using synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and and. Um, and herbicides to create uh, a bounty of a single crop as opposed to that diversified crop. And now I think that that is transitioning back to a slightly more diversified market with my cousins who now farm our land are moving. They went from pickles, which is what I grew up being a part of uh, to corn and soy with stops at potatoes, turnips, and radishes along the way, um, and now that the market for corn and soy is not what it used to be, uh, they are looking at both at black beans as a as an option. They also grow a non-GMO soy that is mostly for sale to the Japanese market, um, and then starting to look at organic farming. And for me, uh, I have a, a certain smugness about that with my cousin. Matt, because he used to make fun of me for our organic farm because it wasn't going to feed the world. And now he's looking at transitioning his large scale grain operation into organics because there's a better price market for it. And I think that's a positive. Um, and so that's the history of that, of my father side of my family. From my mom's side, uh, she was also the descendants of, of Western European immigrants, um, but not, she was German, Scottish, and a bit Irish um, and grew up in Bloomington in Illinois, um, and then moved to California. Both my parents lived in California for a while and then moved back. Um, and so I think that there's also that history of the Midwest right now of people moving away, having experiences elsewhere, and then returning, whether it's to be closer to their families, whether it's financial obligations, whether it's because they truly love this region. There's a whole litany of, of, of rationale. Um, and then using those experiences from elsewhere to shape sort of a modern sense of it. As far as other cultures immigrating, again, I'm not the expert on that, um, but what I'm seeing is um, things like you know, the there's a huge Somali population in Minnesota, and if that comes from my understanding is that that comes from the activity of the church, uh, Lutheran Church in Minnesota, providing um, places for Somali refugees, and that that population has really grown. Um, I think that that's also true in um, parts of Wisconsin with and Minnesota with the Hmong population, uh, and then I think Chicago is its own world for that, um, and that is you know people coming to a big city and finding a place. to, to work and, and different cultures. I mean, I think that, you know, Pilsen has one of the largest uh, Mexican populations outside of the country of Mexico. And so are tacos from Jalisco part of Midwestern food? I think absolutely. Um, and that's where I think that it's important, you know, as we talk about monocultures in agriculture I also think it's important to talk about nothing as a monolith in our cultures too and that there's a, uh, that kind of idea of what the Midwest is versus what it actually is and most people are very surprised to realize that there's a huge um, uh, Chaldean and Arabic population in Dearborn Michigan and then the, you know the different p- communities of color that are, are throughout the Midwest yes ma'am what's the- Yeah. So the question is, what's in season right now on our farm? And it is uh, June 8th, just for posterity's sake. Uh, So right now we have a lot of greens. Uh, It's a lot of spring greens. That idea of a spring green salad mix that's sort of just used as a descriptor now is actually rooted in the fact that we grow a lot of greens in the spring. And they tend to be the smaller heads because they're the first growth. So we have a ton of salad mix. We have a ton of um, spinach and baby kale, pak uh, choy. There's a lot of asparagus right now. It's asparagus season. Um, we have our first flush of uh, snap and shelling peas on our farm. Um, strawberries just came online. Uh, What else do we have? We have some early carrots that were grown in our hoop houses. Um, Radishes are very good. A lot of the brassicas, which are things like kale, arugula, radishes, broccoli, cauliflower, stuff like that, they really love cooler weather, um, which I think is also part of why uh, they're very prominent in Midwestern food cultures is because we have cooler parts of the season. Um, And so the those things do better at the in the springs and in the fall. So we have a lot of those things. And as far as what we're making from them right now, uh, last night we did a dinner that had uh, those carrots roasted in our wood oven with um, over top of a bed of whipped yogurt with um, zatar roasted pistachios, which are not from this region, but I feel comfortable bringing them in because they don't require refrigeration to transport them. Um, so that's the other part of local seasonal is that I think that... Um, while I wouldn't buy cucumbers and put them on our menu at our farm because, A, we grow cucumbers, and so we wouldn't bring in something that we already grow, even if it's not in season, I also think that there's a a lot of responsibility that comes with transporting something that's extremely perishable and very full of water across the country, whereas something like dried seeds, seeds nuts, grains, dried fruit, things like that. You're transporting it with less energy intensity because it doesn't have to be refrigerated. Um, so, we do bring in some of those things. Um, but yeah, roasted carrots with yogurt and these Zatar pistachios and pickled cherries, and then a lot of herbs on top. Uh, we also did a course with asparagus that was both uh, roasted and then the very skinny stalks roasted and then the very fat stalks shaved raw into slivers for some crunch dressed with a green garlic mayonnaise and then some smoked white fish that's coming from the Straits of Mackinac um, and then also a big spinach salad with a bacon vinaigrette and um, hard-cooked eggs and sunflower seeds. Yes ma'am. So it sounds like your
2: cousins are working the farm you grew up on is that right and you had to buy greater Grainer Farm is yours, and how? what was the
1: process of finding the land? So, uh, yes, my cousins are farming my family's land. Um, I do not own Grainer Farm. Grainer Farm is owned by a husband and wife team based in Chicago and in New Buffalo, Michigan. They bought the land because um, the owners, Rob Buono and Liz Cicelli, Rob's mom was an early educator in Minnesota who did a lot of work around life cycles and um, sort of hands on early education. And they wanted to start a farm camp for kids. So that was the impetus for our farm. And every year we do three weeks of programming, ages five to 10 year olds, where the kids come in, they are a part of our farm, and go through the fields. And you learn about good bugs and bad bugs uh, what's a weed, what are the different families of vegetables, and how to tell them apart by their seeds or by their looks or by their smells and then um, they do a lot of arts and crafts around uh, produce and then uh, we do some cooking together. So that was their their trajectory for Grainer and Grainer was started in 2009 um, mostly to be this farm camp for kids and then to also be a hundred member um, community supported agriculture farm. Uh, CSAs or community supported agriculture is a method that was sort of pioneered in the 70s with the initial return to the land. Movement where everyone is acknowledging that agriculture is a very uh, risky business, and um, and Tom Cruise isn't really a part of it, so it's sort of you know rough on both sides. Uh, but the and the idea that we needed an entire community to to buy into this system of agriculture, so people buy into our farm in the spring with a cash investment, and then they're paid back in vegetables throughout uh, the season, which is twenty five weeks for us. Um, and the idea is that by being diversified, if we lose our entire tomato crop, we still have other ingredients that we can sell and our farm will be financially viable even if we have a tremendous loss. And that the community part of that is that people are buying into our farm and saying, we will buy your greens even though we really want tomatoes, but we know that you lost it in a hailstorm, and so we're still gonna be here to support your farm. Yes, sir. I
2: have a two part question. Mm-hmm. Do you create all the recipes for the for the farm for the dinners and for a recipe? I follow recipes. I'm not good at creating. But what's the process? How for creating recipes? What? Do you, how do you do it?
1: So the question is, uh, do I create all of the recipes for our farm dinners and for the book? And then what's the process for that? The answer is yes. Uh, all of the recipes in the book are mine. And all of the dishes that we serve at the farm are, are, are my creation as well. Um, the process for that is for the dinners and for the book, I would say as well, although on a slower pace, is to make a list of everything that's coming out of our farm, any of the ingredients that we have, looking at the different proteins that we have available and um, the different fruits and dairy and things like that, and then thinking, what do we want to showcase and what's going to go well with that? And that's where the my training as a chef came in, um, because that is now a pretty seamless process for me, um, of of saying like oh I've got you know carrots and yogurt and like what goes to that oh that's sort of a you know Mediterranean kind of feel to it let's expand on that for this one dish and then um, asparagus I really love with like a sort of a creamy rich dressing um, maybe we can do a mayonnaise let's take a play on something like an aioli and make it with green garlic, which is the immature garlic st- uh, stalks that we have in the spring until the clove garlic is ready, and then combine that with something smoky like the smoked fish that's very much of the Great Lakes region. So that's how the dishes come together. is really um, It's a creative process, and it's also a very practical process for me. Um, and then that was true, too, of the book, where I wanted it to be a way to best showcase the individual ingredient, but to also give a diversity of options for people so that they could have a window into that process that I've honed over the last 10 years of cooking. Um, and so the actual written recipe process is um, involves uh, kind of coming up with those dishes and then putting together what I think will work and then trying it. Um, and it's not much more romantic than that. It's a lot of cooking. And then it's a lot asking a lot of your friends to cook it as well, uh, to be sure that it's making sense for everyone.
2: And a lot of I, the chefs that I interview and talk to, uh, it's, it's, I think you're just born with special talent, like an artist can paint, a mm-hmm. pianist can play the piano, and you know how to put all this stuff together, and you're just born
1: the The comment is that it's something it's a form of, of artistry that you're born with um, I I mean probably to a degree in that that's true for anybody who is a creative person um, but I also think that they're for every, um, sort of talented person there's a ton of practical work that goes with that um, you know I think that about someone who is uh, a, a really talented seamstress um, and how yes there is an element of being a part of the fashion world and knowing how shapes work and how design works and how different fabrics drape but then there's also a very practical element of learning how to sew and doing some of those those day in and day out work to achieve these sort of what come off as very artistic I think that's true of a musician. You can be born with an inherent talent, uh, but you also have to learn how to do it. And you have to learn how to do what you're not inherently capable of and and slowing down that process to be successful at it so that you can then, learning to walk before you can learn to run. Um, And I think some people are born kind of jogging, but if they want to get past that jogging pace, they have to learn how to run. And I think that's very true. And that is one of the things about food that I really love is um, the practical elements of it. It is very much a practical arts. You know, fate's align. We get to eat ideally three times a day each day. And so if your asparagus doesn't turn out today, try some more tomorrow and it's fine. Uh, and mostly people are happy to eat even not perfect dishes. Um, and so I think that for me with food, there is sort of a underlying... Uh, sinister is maybe too broad of a word but I feel like some of the authority that we all have inherently has been we've ceded it to chefs or to glossy magazines or even cookbooks um, to say like I need to know if that's the right way to do it I think we're all capable of telling if it's the right way or not simply by tasting it and do you like it or not and if you don't there are probably people that you can learn from to make it taste the way that you're picturing it in your mind but we all have that picture in our mind and oftentimes people say well like well is that good and it's like I don't know does it taste good to you if it does then yeah it's good it's right you did it Uh, and it's very practical and um, I also think that there is something about feeding each other that inherently is um, an act of good faith and if you are worried about making food for someone and that they will scoff at it Uh, either that person is acting in bad faith and you probably maybe don't want to feed them anyway, Um, or, I don't know, tell them to make something then. Like, it just seems very, um, there's sort of this weight uh, to cooking that um, I don't exactly know where it comes from. And I think it's, if we link it back to that creative pursuit and that it's okay to have it not be perfect each time, there's a lightness that comes from that that I think is really inspiring. Uh, Yes, ma'am.
2: Talk a little bit about how you keep your land and your plants healthy. Do you use um, biodynamic planting, integrated pest management, or organic?
1: We are certified organic, um, and so that is a regulating body that's sanctioned by the USDA, um, which everyone in this room I hope will be concerned about. The fact that there are attacks to that certification to water it down, um, which I think are are very tricky. Um, I also don't think that organic is the only way to go. I think there are a lot of people who are farming on a smaller scale um, or in a way that is very true to their sustainability of their land that is not certified organic. And that's where, again, I think having that conversation with your farmer is really important. And farmers markets... um, you know, they're sort of a pain to shop at, but they're really glorious in a lot of ways too, because you get to have those conversations with the people who are growing it and you get to, to choose to dive in if you want. Um, as far as, and then biodynamics is another sort of part of that world, which, which is another sort of ethos, um, that's tied to sort of the celestial parts of farming, I don't understand that world quite as much. And it sort of infuriates me because it shouldn't work. Like it's, you know, burying a horn and planting on certain days. Like it doesn't seem like it, that's not how like the science that I learned works, but they're also some of the most productive farms in the world. So there's something there clearly, and maybe it's the attention to detail or all of those things, who knows? But um, yeah, and I, but I will also say, I think that there right now we are at a turning point in agriculture where um, there is sort of, a, in my opinion, a false uh, argument between conventional or large scale um, chemical the intensive farming and small scale biodiverse organic farming. And I would say that I think that pitting people on sides is not super helpful. Um, I think that to have uh, a million grainer farms in the middle of Montana probably doesn't make that much sense. And so, what I think we need as a country and maybe globally is a better product mix. Um, And that product mix for me is um, really driven by food policy. So uh, the farm bill chooses, it's written to subsidize certain farms and to provide crop insurance. Um, Mostly that came out of uh, the real farming trouble in the 80s and wanting to provide a support for that way of life. Uh, I think that we have swung too far to that way where we are only planting in a monoculture and monocultures are valuable. And, um, and so I think that we need to pull back a little bit. And that's why I'm really inspired by my cousins who are thinking about uh, organic farming not as an emotional environmentalist, uh, but as someone who needs to earn more money. And if we can incentivize through our farm policy uh, conservation efforts and organic farming, I think that our ecosystem will be better for it. And having those conversations on Capitol Hill about, um, you know, at, with the one of the most recent White House budgets, all of the funding for Great Lakes restoration was stripped out of those budgets. And that would return our lakes to the state that they were in in the 70s. Um, at the same time, if we are also undercutting the conservation efforts in the farm bill, uh, there doesn't make a ton of sense to to have a bunch of Great Lakes restoration, and then just be having chemical overflow from these larger scale farms dumping into the lakes. Those two things go together and it feels like a hamster wheel. And so if we could change some of our agricultural practices to support with our tax policy and environmental policy that is beneficial and that also provides farmers a living wage, that feels very exciting to me. That's a very dense policy, like sort of overarching theory of mine, um, but I believe it to be true. Yeah, so the question is, how is um, how is farming evolving to be more profitable? I certainly think so, and I quite frankly hope so. Um, right now, our I'm glad to hear that you know farmers because there are fewer and fewer of us. A hundred years ago, 30% of the population were farmers and today it's about 3%. So there is a tremendous drop off and some of that is through automation um, and just the natural sort of scaling up of that that we're seeing. But also a lot of it is people leaving their family farms because it's not a viable financial industry. The USDA is slating for the average farm income this year to be a negative $1,500. So if you're an 18, year old kid who's just graduated from high school, that's not a super appealing industry to get into. Um, And so I think what we're seeing is a way to reconnect people to agriculture um, through things like agritourism. Um, I think about that a lot with the dinners that we do and it being a a new form of value added. So um, where I grew up and also Ballymaloo, the way that it started was a way to earn extra money by putting people up in their home and cooking a meal for them. My grandmother always made jams and jellies and pickles, both for our family, but also to sell. And that was another revenue stream. And so I think what we're doing with our dinners, with our whiskey program that is coming out of our grain production, uh, which is, um, and then also what people are looking at with on-farm stays and agritourism, I think is a modern way of looking at a value-added product for a farm. Um, And I think that my overarching goal for that is to get people connected to what a farm looks like, what it can look like, and why you should be invested in it and in the success of those farmers, um, both in terms of wanting that quality of food to, for yourself, but also for the for the region and for the nation. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm curious what it's like to work on a farm. So could you just walk us through what your typical day,
2: there is? a typical day for you, like are you up at the crack of dawn or?
1: Uh, I mean, I think that there's there probably isn't a totally typical day, um, because you're at the mercy of the weather. Um, and so right now, like say we generally try to work, um, you know, say people, we try to keep it to a five day a week schedule. Well, that schedule is going to switch because it's supposed to be sunny and dry, which is, uh, the first like long stretch of sunny and dry that we've had this spring. Um, and that's going to happen today and tomorrow. And then it's going to rain Monday through Wednesday. So most of our, our farm team is working this weekend, but then hopefully they'll be able to take a Tuesday off or something like that. So there's a lot of shifting in that way. Um, in general, our schedule is, uh, we started around seven and, uh, the week is structured between planting and weeding and maintenance and then also harvesting. So Monday is generally Monday through Wednesday are generally planting, weeding, um, farm maintenance, uh, kind of the act of farming. And then Thursday is our big harvest day. So we have a team of about seven people that are harvesting um, the entire day to stock our farm stand and also um, our CSA delivery that happens on the weekend. Um, and then that changes also throughout the season. So in the springtime, it's a lot of uh, very meticulous, small-scale work of we, we seed and start everything that we grow. So that means days in the greenhouse of um, starting seed and then transplanting them from little tiny seed cells into bigger pots and things like that. Eventually then those go outside or into the hoop houses where they're going to grow and the tasks kind of get bigger at first in the spring after they go in. It's a lot of handheld weeding and small kind of finger work. And then as the plants get bigger, you can start to use a hoe or other implements or a power harrow to to do a lot of that maintenance. Um, And then in the fall uh, there is a lot more harvesting. You know, this idea of like, oh, it's fall, it's harvest season. That's both true and not true because it's not true in the sense that we're harvesting throughout the season. That's how we have food throughout the season. But it is also true that that is when a lot of things that are going to store are coming in. So that's like big potato dig days, um, digging lots of carrots and rutabaga, Um Getting all of the winter squash in and getting that to cure so that we can store it for the winter, things like that. And then usually our farm stand and our CSA wraps around Thanksgiving time. Uh, we will still have produce available um, kind of December, January, February, but everything is just a lot slower uh, because it has less sunlight, it has less heat. Um, and then in February, we start seeds again for the season and then they start to go into the ground around April. So February and March are kind of Greenhouse, soil preparation, things like that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am? What are some of uh, your favorite vegetables that you look forward to cooking with through the season? Uh... I mean, I think that's the other beauty of having, of being in the Midwest where we have very distinct seasons is that I feel excited about each new season. Um, so the first you know, crop of asparagus is always really exciting and a dream and really a celebration. And I feel the same way about the first shishito peppers and the first tomatoes and then you know, really excited to have winter squash back and it feels like it's, um, kind of old friends coming back for a visit. Uh, then there are some of the ingredients that I, th- I think of as being sort of the, the tried and true friends who are there year round. Um, probably my favorite vegetable is cabbage. I think it's the most utilized vegetable in my kitchen, um, mostly because it takes to a lot of different preparations. You can shave it raw into a salad. You can roast it on the um, in an oven to go with something really savory in the wintertime. You can grill it in the summertime and dress it with little more than olive oil, lemon juice, and some herbs. Um, and you can also slow cook it and braise it so it gets really silky and soft and becomes a very comforting dish either at for snow or you know in March when you're like oh god I just want something like fresh and bright um, but like it's still freezing outside so you want something warm um, so those that's kind of how I think about it are the the things that I'm like so excited that are kind of blowing through town for a hot minute and then the friends that are always there it also makes me sound sort of crazy that in my kitchen it's like friends are my vegetables <laughs> uh, yes sir It doesn't dive into that that much. Um, There's a little bit. So the book also, the first half is a strong pantry where it talks about different things to stock in your pantry with condiments. And it has a a passing reference to pickles and kraut and things like that. But that felt like a whole nother book to write. And so I did not get too much into it. There are also places where the recipes are things that I either preserve regularly in the fall or late summer, early fall for winter that freeze really well um, or that you can make in big batches and freeze. So uh, things like any of the vegetable purees are really good for the freezer and you can do them in great big batches. Or things like the braised eggplant or the braised peppers or the roasted cherry tomatoes are all things that I freeze regularly for winter use. Yeah. Yes, sir?
2: Uh, you said you grew up about 20 miles south of Holland. Mm-hmm.
1: Was that near South Haven? Yeah, a bit north of South Haven. So about... Um, St. Joe is even further south, so it's sort of if you were Holland, Sagatuck, we triangulated inland a bit. Um, so, kind of a third of the way from Holland, two thirds of the way to Allegan. It was in Allegan County. Um, if you were, I, where I live is about four miles into the state of Michigan. My family's farm is about another hour and a half north along the lakeshore. And you, so, you,
2: I, I'm assuming you grew up near the blueberry capital of Suffolk. Yeah. And do you have any special connection with blueberries growing up so close to, I guess it's considered the blueberry capital?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's a big part of of Michigan food is certainly is that uh, fruit and how fruit works into a savory element. Um, Blueberries, certainly I grew up on blueberry farms and joined all of the kids who grew up on blueberry farms as we ditched, we turned 16 and we were able to drive to a job in the city and not have to pick blueberries or haul pickles anymore. Um, And then I also lived in Traverse City area, which is the cherry capital of the the nation. Um, And so a lot of is that cherries get worked into cherry barbecue sauce and cherry sausages, which are sometimes good and sometimes not so great, um, and and then also you know there's a whole fruit belt along that western coast of Michigan. So things like apricots, peaches, there's a tremendous grape industry. Um, and getting back to your question about value added, um, you know a lot of the cherry farmers up in northern Michigan are starting to not see a market for uh, their cherries that are not sold on the fresh fruit market. The ones that are sold as cherry juice or maraschino cherries or cherry pie filling, and that market is starting to go. Way a little bit, as well as the seasons are changing. And so a lot of those farmers are looking at pulling out their cherry orchards and replanting to grapes, but not for table grapes, but for making wine. And there is um, a really burgeoning wine industry all through Michigan. I would say uh, northern Michigan has some of the best wine that's coming out of the state. Um, places like uh, Mobby and Big Little and uh, Bel Lago are making really world-class wines from grapes that are grown in Michigan. And then there's also, um, um, because of the access to land, which is a big hurdle for a lot of uh, agricultural producers, a lot of people are moving from other parts of the country back to Michigan and either bringing the grapes in from other regions and making really great wine or starting to grow other grapes uh, to make different types of wine. And as it gets warmer, uh, there will be more and more red wines from Northern Michigan. Any other questions about Midwest farming, cookbooks, uh, deep dish pizza? Yes, Nancy? How did you manage your time
2: between farming and writing this amazing
1: (laughs) beautiful book? Not that well. The question is, how did I manage my time between farming and writing and cooking? I think it gets back to that idea of stress and uh, whether or not, yes, it was a lot of work, and it was a lot of work that was done uh, late at night or early in the morning, or um, I wrote a big chunk of that book in December when um, I was privileged enough to have a job that was flexible so I didn't have to be at work each day, and I wrote a lot of it then, Um, and then. In some ways, that seems like a lot, but also it was constant sources of inspiration. I wrote most of the chapters as those ingredients were coming into season, and so I was cooking with them in my own kitchen and thinking about what they meant to me and the recipes I wanted to write. So it was sort of a natural jumping off point. If I had to write a recipe right now for pineapple or even something like uh, apples or grapes, where they're not in season um, or I don't have access to them regularly, that feels much more like a theoretical sort of process and this was a very much a like documenting recording sort of process. Um, and I think it gets back to that idea of yes, it's a lot of work, but it's also very good work. And so you're tired but not defeated or tired but also excited and invigorated for the next day so. The question is how do hydroponics and aquaponics fit into sort of a historically Midwestern agricultural perspective? I think that for me, um, it's again back to wanting to create the most ideal product mix. And so if there is a way, most of that farming is happening in denser populated areas like urban centers, which I think if that helps make it easier to get food into more people's uh, diets who are living in this area, Great. Um, There is some conversation about whether or not they are actually less energy intensive than soil farming. it's certainly true that while it might uptick the energy cost to produce those tomatoes by um, in the wintertime by heating the space and, and running the, the water that the roots are grown in, um, that probably is offset by transporting um, those ingredients from far away. And also then the benefit of having a fully ripe tomato um, that's ripened on the vine as opposed to picked when it's at first blush and then ripened with ethylene gas while it's in transit. Um, I think none of these uh, ideas are black and white, and I think that there has to be space for modern forms of agriculture. I also think we can't have just a backwards looking revolution. Um, We can't go back to everyone being subsistence farmers. We're past that point as a culture. Um, But I also think that if we leave that culture entirely or we forget the lessons learned by it, uh, we lose something too. And so I think that there is a lot to be gained from something like hydroponics or aquaponics but it's not the only solution. And I think anybody that tells you it is probably wants to sell you something from their hydroponic farm. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, thank you. Can
2: you talk
1: about the food from Kathy? Yeah, so Kathy made this beautiful beet pasta salad from the, from the book and that's very exciting. Beautiful. So, yeah, so the, the three dishes that both Deb and Kathy made uh, is a beet pasta salad where you take steam-roasted beets and puree them and dress pasta with it with pickled golden raisins and poppy seeds. And then Deb also made the roasted potato salad, which I think gets back to that idea of when people think of Midwestern food, think of potato salad. So I knew I wanted to have a potato salad in there, but this is um, a bunch of roasted potatoes with a, instead of using um, mayonnaise and hard-cooked eggs, it just has has the grated hard cooked egg to add richness, garlicky breadcrumbs and herbs, and then the asparagus salad is the raw asparagus salad, uh, which is just with a, um, I believe it's an anchovy vinaigrette and hard cooked egg, and um, and I think. I'm blanking now on what exactly it's in the recipe Um, but it's what I love about the raw asparagus is that it it felt as revolutionary to me to eat raw asparagus as eating sushi did for the first time and that it's these things that you think oh you can't you have to cook that but you you don't always Um, and so being able to taste it and the first time I tasted raw asparagus was when I was harvesting it at Singerman's Deli for their menu and we went out a team of us to pick asparagus Um, and my chef uh, just like snapped a piece off and basically like shoved it in my mouth, and I was like, Oh, you have to cook that and it's really dirty. And um, and it was such a delight, and I that I will never forget that that feeling. And now I do it to all of my cooks. The first time I get Abby Klug's asparagus, which um she started harvesting, I think, three weeks ago. I just like walked around the farm, like shoved it in everybody's mouth. <laughs> so now for you as well. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for being here and being interested. It's really Uh, this group is a a really inspiring um, an inspiring group and inspiring what you all are thinking about and excited about so thank you for being here and for having me here